Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Competitive Enablement Show on the Compete Network, powered by Clue, the podcast for product marketers and competitive professionals looking to give their companies a competitive advantage. I'm your host, Adam McQueen, and we're wrapping up win-loss month, Ben. Technically, this is coming out in March, so whatever, guys, get over it. We really got stoked about win-loss, and it spilled over into March. But to wrap up win-loss month, we had Alex Salop, who wrote an article for us actually on, on Clue's site. We'll, we'll put the show notes in there below, and he shares his sort of experience and best advice for running win-loss and compete together. Ben, Alex was great. One of the most impressive fountains of knowledge when it comes to the confluence of win-loss and compete. He's done it at a few different jobs. He really gets, he gets, he gets it, you know, he gets, uh, he gets how those two work together and how they can work together to, to really add value to the entire organization. Um, it's super valuable for us to hear, hear how that works in practice and some of the examples he shares. And I know our listeners will like it as well. Alex is, Alex is a good one. He, he's he's really fun. Um, and for those of you, again, article, go check it out. But what I love about it too is he shares some sort of frameworks or steps to follow that are very tactical for folks that are trying to figure out how to do win-loss, compete, and kind of merge the two. And he has this kind of three steps towards win-loss. And he also shared these like five practical ways that he uses win-loss research, win-loss analysis to really inform how the company competes better and I won't spoil this bit, but I loved his story about what he derived from his win-loss analysis and how that bled into working with the sales leadership team to improve some of their sales processes to really drive a ton more revenue because there was a big leak happening. They identified it and it's cool to kind of step-by-step go through as a leadership team what they identified and then how they actually put that into action to really compete better as an organization. So look out for that story. That was a really good bit. And Adam, I don't know if you remember, but last week, uh, Peter Martin shared with us that it was feedback about the sales process that he brought to his very first win-loss presentation, and it actually wasn't the right place for it. Um, And what the takeaway from that is, if your executives are expecting a competitive win-loss analysis, it's got to be about the competitors. But in terms of bringing overall value to the organization, absolutely getting win-loss information on the sales process, you know, talking to sellers and improving those internal processes, even though they aren't directly related to competitors, brings a ton of value, uh, can really help revenue, can lower costs, speed things up, all that good stuff. So take a listen to that because it shows you the real breadth of, uh, of, of capabilities that win-loss analysis can have. For sure. We had a great conversation with Alex. And with that all said, let's get into our conversation. All right. Today, I'm joined by Alex Salop, the head of product marketing at Arbinger Institute. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me, Adam. It's great to be here and I look forward to our conversation. So Alex, I've got you on. This is, we're closing up here on on our show. We've been doing win-loss month. We've been diving into everything from win-loss, from how you do the interviews, how you share the insights with executives. And you so just so happen to write a really good piece that's up on the Clue website. We'll put the show notes, we'll put the link to it in the show notes below. But you shared sort of your experience and also just like a great thought leadership piece around using win-loss in conjunction with running a compete program and your, your company's competitive strategy. So 
today I wanted to kind of dive into that a little bit more with you. One of the first things you mentioned, and you you're after my producer Ben's heart with the Moneyball analogy to open, is you talked about sort of how the landscape has changed and that like analytics is 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 increasingly being used in the business landscape. So can you tell me how you've experienced the data-driven revolution so so far in your career? Yeah, absolutely. And so I'll 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 work with that analogy uh, because as a baseball fan, um, it works pretty well for me. So for those people who have been baseball fans for a while, you may remember back around um, you know two thousand or later, maybe uh, there's this fellow who still I believe is the general manager of the Oakland A's. His name is Billy B, former baseball player. And you know if you see many old baseball movies, you know that like when they talk about good players, you know, there are a bunch of guys in the room somewhere chewing tobacco and spitting it out and saying, he's got five tools, he can throw, he can hit, he can run, and all this good stuff. But what they're not really doing is analyzing, uh, using any kind of a data data source uh, to determine whether or not that player can actually play. And Billy Dean revolutionized that whole approach to baseball uh, so that he was making data-based decisions about players that were often slipping through other people's hands, and his teams tended to do very well as a result. Now, you know, I've been in the tech business for a while. I'm actually, currently, I've actually sort of taken a detour out of tech uh, for the first time in a really long time. But in the tech industry, um, you know, it, it kind of was the same way. And I think, you know, just generally speaking, marketing for a long time was sort of a sorry stepchild to the rest of the organization. But uh, and I you might maybe you can appreciate that as well. But you know that's changed, right? And every aspect of what people do in marketing and in sales is really being analyzed a lot. And so now, uh, you know, rather than going by some anecdotal evidence, someone says, "Well, the reason we lost this deal is because you know they have this feature, or this is a lousy customer, or a ton of other reasons." We're now using data-based decision-making to help us understand how we compete, how we can compete more effectively, and the knobs that we should be turning in order to make those things happen. In in your role then, running sort of the competitive strategy at your previous organizations in, in your in your tech career, how, how did that affect how you worked? Was there some specific examples with, now you have this data available that you're able to really implement more change or make more informed decisions from, from a competitive standpoint? So yeah, I, I, I've been uh, running uh, product marketing organizations for about 12 years now, 13 years. Uh, and when I first started doing it, uh, you know, the, the way that we looked at competitive, honestly, the way that I did it was when I, when the new person came on board, I would say, Hey, here, you have competitive. It'll be a great way to learn the industry. You'll find out about our competitors. We'll see what people are looking, working. For. That was, it was true. I mean, it was a really good way to learn about sort of the market and all that good stuff, but you know, what it really wasn't doing was um, putting enough weight on how you know, on, on, uh, competitive, because frankly, competitive analysis for most companies doesn't just drive how you position your marketing material. It you know drives how salespeople engage in conversations, uh, and for most you know organizations that are forward thinking, it also drives product development. Um, so you know it's become increasingly important. So back in the day, I would hand it to the rookie and say, "Hey, take a look." But now, uh, you know, we uh, do a bunch of things, not the least of which, you know, I found a clue to be a really effective way to 
uh, put competitive information uh, such as data cards uh, and also information that was coming from the web or other sources into a place that was really easy to navigate and find. That's why I, I you know, really love Clue. Uh, but also found that win-loss analysis through a third-party vendor was really, really helpful because that kind of information is very difficult for you to obtain on your own because there are just implicit biases, either from your own salespeople or from the fact that customers don't really want to talk to you in very honest ways often because they don't want to hurt your feelings or they're done with you because they chose somebody else or whatever. And so you're losing out on all that information. So there's a lot more you can do now than you could possibly have done, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago to gather that information and use it uh, in, a, in an important way within the company. And I like that, how you ended there around using it as well, because I think there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot to be gathered, but it only is as useful as how you share that out to the teams you're working with. And to that point, let's get into a little bit of the win-loss side, and then we'll dive into sort of compete and win-loss together. But you okay. shared sort of this stair-step approach to win-loss with three clear steps for folks. So I'd love for you to kind of share a little bit about that approach for, for the listeners. Well, let's see if I can remember them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure I can. So I think what I probably started with was saying, you know, if you're going to do nothing else, right, you should probably have some sort of a win-loss I mean, some sort of a, uh, um, a competitive battle party uh, type product like Clue in place. You need to aggregate information that you collect throughout the organization. You will be able to present it back. One of the things I really like about Clue, uh, when it's used well, I think it, it's a challenge in some organizations to do it, but if you can really democratize the information that uh, comes into Clue, so you're not, as a marketing person, just the only person who's putting stuff in there, but you're getting your salespeople to do it you know, Clue has a really nice extension that you can put in your browser, that you can, uh, you know, you can peel off information from various websites and or in Slack, you know, variety of sources and put it all in Clue. And those battle cards, because they're, and I know I'm doing a lot of selling for you here, those battle cards, uh, because, you know, they can, uh, it's all HTML and you can see it in Salesforce, you can stick it into your, whatever your sales portal is, whatever, uh, they become really powerful. So if nothing else, I strongly recommend doing that. That's sort of step one. That, you know, step two is how do you um, gather information from your buying audiences to figure out what happened? And so, you know, if you don't feel like spending the money and you definitely have to spend money on a good win-loss product, um, you know, you should think about how you're going to communicate with uh, customers and frankly, people who've decided not to buy and see what kind of information you can gather from them. You also obviously want to talk to your sales force, but you have to recognize that your sales force has its own implicit bias. I uh, remember in my past employer that when I was, uh, I, I actually got emails and calls from salespeople who say, who said, do not include this deal in your analysis, <laughs> which of course leads me to absolutely want to include that deal in my analysis. Don't, it's the don't step on the grass situation here. Of course we yeah. want to step on the grass. Now you can't tell us don't look under the sheets here. That's right. It's like telling your toddler, do not play with that thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but, you know, because often you find some of the most interesting things, but, you know, they have an implicit interest in the kind of things that you gather from their buyers. So, but, you know, in the absence of a win-loss program, you have to think about how you can gather information from customers. Uh, and then obviously sort of the, 
the, the best way to do it, I, I find, is working with a third party uh, who can really provide you with some pretty unbiased information. I only say pretty because obviously, you know, you're feeding them the questions they're asking the customers. And they're going to ask, um, you know, questions that are of interest to you, but it's really, really helpful. Um, and if, if you don't mind me just adding on to that a little bit, I know probably a little bit of feel. Um, you know, one of the things that we found working with Unlost is that it's not so much that we're going to get some incredibly important thing that we never thought about, some revelation, but rather it's that we can confirm the things we thought were true, right? With a data-based analysis that helps us move forward with confidence. Because a lot of times, for example, a marketer might say, hey, you know, this feature, uh, it's really, you know, we're not doing this very well. It's really impeding some deals. We really, really need to focus on this. And, you know, the product might say, well, we don't think so. But now if you can go back to them with some data-based evidence where they'll say, oh, you know, you're probably right. You know, important you know, buyers are saying that this is something we need to work on. They can reprioritize what they're doing. And not only that, the alignment between the organization and sales and marketing and product, which, you know, some are better than others, but they're never perfect. If you can use win laws as a lever to increase that alignment, uh, you're going to get a tremendous value from it. I I immediately think of two other conversations I've had with folks running win loss, and it's exactly what you said. Um, we actually spoke to Tira Schweitzer from Community Brands only a few weeks ago, and that was something that was very interesting that she mentioned was this, like, it's not always this brand new thing or here's something to throw onto your roadmap or sales are doing this completely wrong. It's like a confirmation of those hunches, those kind of gut feeling instincts that are around the organization and different departments, but you can never be fully confident in that unless you have the data that backs it and proves, okay, this makes sense on our, in our product. This is where we're winning. Um, this is maybe something that isn't as strong in our sales process today. And it's, it's just like a confirmation of that. And Jen Roberts as well in her presentation at Compete Week says, she, I like the way she puts it, it's like it anchors everyone. It anchors everyone around this like central point of view. And really, again, it doesn't always need to be something revolutionary or something that you haven't seen before or uncovered a completely new blind spot, but it does have everyone in alignment and reading the same data and drawing the same kind of insights from that. Yeah, you know, and I'm, gonna, uh, I'm actually going to invoke my current employer, uh, in this conversation. And, you know, at, at Arbinger, we talk about this concept of an outward mindset, which is thinking of, you know, other people and their needs just as much as you think of your own. But people are naturally inclined to have an inward mindset, which is when they look at a problem, right, they often say, well, it's not me, right? There's something going on here and it's somebody else's fault. And that's really true uh, when you're running into difficulty against a competitor. You know, everybody says, I'm doing everything I can. But if you can have some evidence that will help people see the playing field in a slightly different way and realize there are things that they could do or priorities that they can set will have the most impact on results, uh, then I think it really makes a ton of sense. You know, I, for example, I've worked at employers, I won't name any particular, where uh, one issue that we've had uh, has been that, you know, when we get into a demo, right, uh, some of our demos might be, you know, long and not very focused. We're not talking about solving customer problems uh, as opposed to just showing off features, right? And sometimes it's really difficult to move the needle when you want to tell somebody you've got to really rethink 
the way that you go about doing a core part of your job. But with this database governance, with people telling you, and actually, you know, I said database evidence a lot, but a lot of it is is also qualitative. But when you get an unbiased uh, viewpoint that says, um, hey, this demo compared to the other guys was too long or too meandering or whatever, uh, that also is extremely valuable. So it's a combination of having that data along with some directly referenceable quotes from people who weren't talking to your company mm-hmm. that could really help um, you know, uh, people reprioritize the things they're going to work on. Yeah, it's 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 blending the two, right? And I think your point is, folks might be, and I, I don't say this in a in a negative way, but they might be more precious. But when you said they turn inwards, it's like, especially when you bring the world of compete and win loss to the table, it's sort of some people can take it personally as like a reflection of how myself or my team is performing, and right. some of the best folks that present this present it in a way that it's one not attacking obviously but like being able to zoom out to that macro what we need to like alignment on the goals for our business we need to achieve these targets and here are the areas for improvement to achieve said targets rather than we're going on a witch hunt and win loss is going to go find where the where the the holes are in the ship right now and we're going to expose them to the world i i think there is this sort of soft skill that I've seen with a lot of the best compete pros and product marketers that can really be subtle with how they position that because it really is important. Like when times are tough, people, our our CEO, Jason, sometimes calls it gripping the stick where everyone just looks out for their own thing. And that inevitably is is a losing mindset and it's a losing strategy for teams. And I think win-loss bridges the gap, but you have to be delicate with both of these things. Yeah, and that that's that's definitely true. So in the interest of full disclosure, probably one of the reasons why you have me on is that I was a clue customer and I was also using DoubleCheck, which I know is the, the company you recently acquired, uh, and which I, I loved. I mean, out of the vendors that I work with, Clue and DoubleCheck were the ones I, I liked the most, which is probably another reason why you have me on. But um, the uh, you know one of the warnings that I gave to the executive team when we were pulling information from these win-loss interviews is, hey, listen, you know, some of this is sensitive. Some of this is going to talk to individual uh, experiences that people had, but you have to remember that this is not trying to analyze anybody's job performance. This is all about how can we compete more effectively? How can we take the good things that we do? And obviously there are always a lot of good things that you do because that's why you're a viable enterprise. And some of the bad things that you do and synthesize them into best practices that you can help the organization use moving forward. And, um, you know, you've really got to, uh, you know, put your, uh, you know, biases against an individual or a way a team works, you know, put those aside and really look at this from as much of an impartial, how can we help the organization perspective? Uh, and that I think is, is really effective. Um, but that's definitely, you know, that's, that's work that needs to be done. And you have to be very upfront about that so that, you know, it works uh, to your benefit. And I, I'm keen to kind of dive into a few of these examples from your from your career. Uh, another part of your article, which kind of lends itself into this that you mentioned, is sort of using win-loss to help you compete better. I think, as we know, win-loss and compete, are, they're inextricably tied. We The way we think about compete at Clue is you have sort of this market intelligence, you have your intelligence on your competitors, and buyer intelligence, bringing that three together and being able to enable the different levels of the organizations, how you compete effectively. 
and you shared sort of five examples or five specific ways that win-loss has worked into your compete program and help your strategy and how you compete better. Um, specifically, you mentioned a story in which you partnered with sales leadership to improve your sales process. Could you take us through that story a little bit? Um, what was the problem you were trying to solve and how did you solve it through win-loss? Uh, sure. So uh, in, in uh, this, the space I was in at the time, uh, you know, it was a space that had uh, several other adjacent uh, markets where everybody was trying to make inroads into everybody else's market a little bit. So they're trying to steal customers and look for low-hanging fruit, uh, which, you know, obviously is extremely common. Uh, and when that's happening, one of the ways that you can make sure you don't get, you know, taken advantage of, I guess, by one of these competitors is by making sure that you're doing really good qualification and helping that buyer uh, either see that their you know challenge is most effectively addressed through the use of what you're selling uh, versus maybe one of these other adjacent industries, or recognize the fact that you know you're not going to win this deal because they're only looking for you know what these other guys did. And so uh, we had you know one one company where we were losing a lot of business, um, and it was you know it was concerning to us. Uh, but what we found was that uh, while there were capabilities in their product that we needed to replicate, because I think just as you know, technology advances, there are certain things you need to do. A huge part of the problem was we continued to find ourselves in selling situations where uh, we probably weren't going to win that deal. So we had to do a better job of identifying, you know, why we shouldn't be there, uh, ask the right questions, do the best we can to, you know, kind of turn the tables and make it more about the things that we can help them address most effectively. But at the end of the day, if we can't do that, you know, let's let's drop that deal at, you know, discovery, let's say, uh, and let's, you know, move on to something else rather than taking it through demo or, you know, a pilot or whatever else. And even worse, you know, forecasting that thing so that when you reach the end of the quarter, you spent all this time and resources and the board of directors is expecting us to hit a certain revenue target and that deal doesn't come in, uh, we don't have that problem. We're able to forecast a lot more effectively. So the result of all of that, the result of finding out that we were really entering into too many deals where we were not likely to win, helped us you know, empower the salespeople to make sure that they were doing a little bit better qualification and they were staying on message to make sure that we had the best chance of winning. So that was a, you know, that's probably a pretty, I would say that, you know, that was my experience, but I bet if you talk to other win-loss customers, they've had really similar experiences that way. It's not always about what's wrong with the product. It might be what's wrong with the sales cycle and how you're approaching. This is, I love this example. I think there's so many elements at play here because, I mean, bottom line is the business ex exists to drive more revenue. And what you mentioned there is uh, not a strong enough disqualification or qualification criteria inefficient from a resources standpoint during the sales process you're less likely to win again your data is probably from from your crm data your win-loss analysis is showing we're less likely to win when these competitors or these use cases come up so you're really fighting this uphill battle you're setting unrealistic expectations and also if we think about it from the post sales perspective even if you did pull them through you might not even be a good they might not be a good customer fit 
And now you've yeah, now you've right. put put in the, the the risk of churn immediately when you hand that over to your onboarding, your customer success is like, oh yeah, as a sales side, we're done with that one. We we hit that we hit that target there, but it's gonna come full is sorry, excuse me. It's gonna come full circle on the on the churn front. It's like, all right, deal with this one now, customer success team. And when you think about all the vital pieces to a, to your business when it comes to revenue retention churn rates expansion with your current customers is another huge lever especially in these times that need to be considered and so i i I look at that example and i'm like it's it's a funny one we talk about the need to win deals against competitors but knowing which ones you shouldn't even be competing with and it's almost like we're gonna stay away from that but we're gonna really double down here because this is where we win and it's having that targeted focus I guess my follow-up on that is, so you share that with sales leadership. How does that get put into play? How does that get into motion then? Do you, do you work with the sales leadership team? Is it a handoff to them? Like, How do you ensure that these insights that you've derived actually come into play and start working within how you're qualifying from the seller's side? Well, they're, they're, you know, that's a multifaceted answer to that, but I think really it's a partnership uh, between marketing and sales. So typically, um, what what I think is most effective is that as whoever owns competitive analysis, you know, product marketing, I'd say typically owns it, but not always. Sometimes sales enablement has it. Uh, but whoever has it has to uh, also work in partnership with whoever is creating the material and providing training for salespeople uh, to go out and feel so you know typically as a product marketer i have uh, been responsible for creating discovery questions or to um you know putting together those battle cards or having people who work for you put together battle cards uh, uh about specific competitors and so it's really important to think about the ways that you can get that information to salespeople in a way that's effective so how uh, uh you know so we would come out with faqs with discovery questions on them you know that and, and explanations of why these kinds of questions are being asked. Um, we would, you know, in our weekly meetings, we would have salespeople uh, present, uh, you know, to people. So they would talk about sort of how they want to deal or sometimes they talk about how they lost a deal. Uh, that could be really useful. And also, you know, I'm, I'm sure the majority at this point of, of your customers are probably using conversation intelligence. Uh, use some of those conversation snippets and show exactly what happens sort of when you go down this rabbit hole uh, that you're probably not going to come out of in the way that you'd like um, and, and you know, get to that point. So I think it's a multifaceted approach, but the most important thing is that there is a commitment. And, and you know, I hate to say it, you know, and before I was a marketer, I was a salesperson for a long time, so I can say this with some, you know, degree of knowledge <laughs> about this. You know, you can do the whole horse to water thing. You can get them there, but you really have to work with sales leadership, right? With the frontline managers, particularly, to get salespeople to engage in the behaviors you want them to, so they're not gonna end up in that same place. And actually, to your point, Adam, which really kind of cracked me up, I forgot about this until you said it, but several companies ago, I worked I worked with a sales rep, this great at closing business. He would just bring out all these deals, all these deals, none of them, none. I mean, like he was like, <laughs> That's and, not his you know, problem. <laughs> well, yeah, well, eventually he wasn't strong. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but, you know, they, and they knew it. They're like, oh, man, the break. He said, this is not the use case for us. But, you know, 
Uh, but, you know, uh, one more thing about it is that, listen, salespeople hate to say, you know, I have no pipeline, right? They mm -hmm. want to have a, that mm -hmm. deal in the pipeline because that's what they're paid to do because everybody has the pipeline to close ratio. And, you know, you know, you've got to have $3 million or $6 million if you want to close a million, whatever it is. So you got to like always have those deals in, in process. And I've sat in meetings where people have objected to this kind of thing because they say, well, yeah, but then all rich have to take these deals out of pipeline. I'm like, they're not going to close. Why, why would you want them in pipeline? It's, so, hey, it's going to be a yeah long term. It's going to be a hindrance to the seller's performance, anyways. What I love there yeah. as well, the the last thing before we jump into uh, into rapid fire here is the what you mentioned there is sort of the first step is sharing the data along with some qualitative data as well, quant and qual to sales leadership. You, here's the business problem. Here's how we yeah. solve it. Partnership, but also what what we at Clue really kind of. We, we beat the drum on is like making these insights actionable to all levels of the um, organization because sales reps, even middle management too, need to know one, why, why are we disqualifying this? How does it work? And you mentioned some specific examples there, like show gong snippets of the sellers going down a rabbit hole, wasting time and resources on a deal that's not going to close. Uh, the FAQ example, I think it's really laddering the information and how you share it to different stakeholders that are... I'm, I'm using the word seniority here, but maybe um, how close they are to the deal front lines versus the people that are looking at the bigger picture revenue targets. And I love the, the how you ladder that information down to different teams and then also provide something actionable, even like this is why we're doing it and this is how you can operate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, honestly, the one thing I found also, even as a former salesperson, is that no one is going to listen uh, to me say mm -hmm. it, you know, as a marketer. They're going to listen to a salesperson tell them, which is one of the reasons why we always want to have salespeople um, partnering with us to tell those stories because it's just way more effective. Absolutely. Um, it's time. Are you ready for um, rapid fire? This is producer Ben's favorite segment. Okay. Uh, he keeps me blinded. So I'm looking at the questions for the first time. Apologies. Uh, if right. you have any complaints, put them towards Ben. Audience, same thing. Let's get into it. All right. All right. The best part about living in the vineyard. Uh, well, first of all, and you can blame Ben because I saw this. Uh, I saw this question. We don't I love say blaming Ben. We we don't live in the vineyard. We live on the vineyard. Oh, <laughs> rookie move! How, this, he's exposed himself. Oh, yeah, he really did. So Ben's not invited. Um, <laughs> now, the, the the best part of living on the vineyard is natural beauty. We have beaches. We have beautiful hiking trails. Uh, you know, it's always nice to be outside here. Um, so it's, it's a gorgeous place, uh, but we have enough people coming in the summer. So don't feel like you have to come, even though I, I love it here. But most famous celebrity you've met on uh, that, the vineyard. That's a, that, well, I, I've, I've actually met a lot of celebrities on the vineyard. I, I you know, there, there are a lot of people I've met, but probably the most interesting one is, um, I met Henry Louis Gates, Skip Gates, who's a pretty well-known, he's a professor. He has this great show that runs on PBS about genealogy. And I wrote, it took an entire ferry ride talking with the guy. And he was just a fascinating fellow. So, you know, I've met a lot. I've met, I've met uh, Barbara Walters. I've met uh, Robert McNamara. I've met uh, Walter Cronkite. He's probably the most famous person I met. Mike Wallace, a ton of people on the video. I'm in the full interest of full disclosure. When I was in college, I drove a taxi in the summertime at Martha's Vineyard. 
Ooh. So I got to meet all these people as part of what I was doing. Um, but the Skip Gates was a, a, a wonderful conversation with a really interesting person. So I'm going to say that was my best one anyway. Our next episode will have to be Taxi Tales with Alex. Uh, <laughs> all right. Give our listeners a book recommendation. Can be personal, can be professional, whatever you're reading. Well, okay. I'll tell you the book that I just read. I know you're going to think this is a shameless self-promotion. Uh, <laughs> but this book is called Leadership and Self-Deception. Okay, this is a book that was uh, written by Terry Warner, who was the founder of the Arbinger Institute. And it was written about this idea of the inward versus outward mindset. What I'll say very briefly about it is that, you know, most people tend to be inward. And so they see people as uh, vehicles or obstacles uh, or maybe even irrelevant to what they're doing. Uh, and because of that, there's often a lot of uh, friction, a lot of tension in organizations or in people's personal lives. Uh, and so what uh, this idea about leadership and self-deception uh, uh, does, it talks about using an outward mindset to recognize the humanity in people and realize sort of what their side of the picture is so that you can get more done. So a perfect example of this is I was talking about the tension between sales and marketing and product and companies. Everybody has their own little fiefdom. You know, they're responsible for their thing and they're doing everything right, but the other guys are doing everything wrong. But if they start thinking about sort of what the other parts of the war have to go through to get their jobs done, they might be able to figure out ways they can collaborate, communicate more effectively. Uh, so this book actually is, you know, on the must-read list of people like uh, Obama and Clinton and others. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's really great for really rethinking the way that you communicate with others individually and as an organization, leadership and self-deception. I really like that. I really like that. Uh, okay, two more. What's your biggest priority at work right now? Well, uh, I'm joining this this group that has been successful completely, really, from inbound activity, word of mouth advertising, uh, organizations finding out about Arbiter or want to bring them in, which is awesome. But we're standing up a marketing department right now. So we are getting to the you know the nuts and bolts of product marketing, uh, developing a consistent message and you know positioning, delivering of that and all that stuff, creating the material where it's required, standing up a new website, all the all the good stuff that it's really sort of a full stack from my perspective, a full stack product marketing uh, role, including you know helping the salespeople sort of deliver that consistent message. There's a lot of work I'm doing right now. It's fun stuff. That's great. And then finally. Boston or New York? Oh, man. Boston. I mean, clearly. I was born in uh, in New York City. <laughs> um, but I went to college in Boston, and uh, I ended up adopting Boston sports teams. I would say this, that I like Boston sports teams better than New York, but I still kind of like the Mets. I kind of like the Knicks. But I'll tell you right now, uh, I don't like the Yankees. I can use the H word. That's not appropriate. You know, <laughs> I'm sure they might be watching, uh, but I'm not a fan of the Yankees. Uh, the title town. Boston. I I'd say Boston might be my favorite city I've ever visited in the U.S. It's I think it's number one. So uh, I, I I can't fault you on that. New York too big for me. I Alex, I, I, I just took that down. I want to. Say, I took that down to a sports analogy. New York is a lovely city. I love going to New York. So I, I, they're both great cities. They just are different cities. 
Well, I can't stand Boston sports teams, so this is a good time to wrap up the conversation, I think. Wow, I guess so, man. (laughs) (laughs) Alex, thank you so much for joining me. How can listeners, folks watching, connect with you? Uh, Well, they can connect with me, of course, on LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Alex, and we'll catch everyone next week. Hey everyone, I'm Jason Oakley, co-host of Compared to What, a show where my friend Federico and I dive deep into the all-important tool in a product marketer's toolkit, the comparison page. We guide you through real-life examples from brands like Shopify and Big Commerce, Chromecast and Airtable, Asana, ClickUp, and more, taking a look at the good, the bad, and sometimes the ugly along the way. So come watch Federico and myself on season one of Compared to What, only on the Compete Network. All right, back to the show.